All right. Hey, everyone. If you've read ahead, you know we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Word of God. We are currently in the book of Genesis. We've begun it, of course, nine weeks ago because we're in chapter 10. Pretty easy to kind of figure out how that works. And one of the fun things about Genesis, of course, is you're going to get the foundation for everything in Scripture. I mean, what you'll find, there is no New Testament doctrine, no New Testament mindset. There's no New Testament anything that you can't find somewhere in the book of Genesis. That's part of the fun of this. Um, But then with that, we want to make sure that we're getting a hold of every text. And then you get through chapter 10. And in chapter 10, if you've read ahead, you go, oh, there's about 70, 72 names in here. What on earth are we going to do with this? So um, first of all, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Let's get one to you. uh, And then open them up to the book of Genesis is chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10. We're going to go right to prayer because we've got so much fun to have. And God willing, we may even get through the first nine verses of the next chapter as well. That should scare you. All right. Lord God, thank you for the honor that it is to come before you as your children. Oh, how great the love that you've lavished upon us that we would be called your children. And that is what we are. We thank you that the price that you paid to adopt us was the price of your only begotten Son, Jesus the Christ, from your own gene pool that would die on a cross, not because he deserved it, rather tempted in every way yet without sin, but would take our sins upon himself. As we read that you made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that we might become your righteousness. And what a ridiculous concept that you would desire us so greatly that you would rather die than live without us. I pray, Lord, for great encouragement. Lord, I pray that, that any of us who have ever read through chapter 10, that today would be the day that we would be so bowled over, so amazed, so blessed today that we would say, I just can't believe I've read through this quickly before. And Lord, in that, I pray that we would truly desire you and crave you. And Lord, that your word would do everything you intend for it to do today. Lord, you know what that is. You know where we're at. You know that every speck of dust under our shoes, you know every vapor of water in our breath, you know every just thought that is leaking out of our tendrils, Lord. You know everything that we find that is great, things that we find that are weak, things that we claim is victory that, that, that should give you the credit for, and things that we just desperately cry out for your help. And today, meet every one of us right where we're at in this text, God, please. Every one of us. Lord, if there be any who have yet to know you, let this be the day of their salvation. For those who do know you, let this be the day that we say, wow, yes, God, I want to go closer from saved, from sinner to saved, and from saved to student, and from student, Lord, to servant. God, make every one of us that much closer to you and remind us that there is nothing more important to you than our relationship with you. Nothing. And so, God, I just pray now that you would do a radical work in this time. Lord, for each of us, that you would not only speak to us individually and that we would enjoy, have fun in this text, but also that you'd speak to us corporately as a body, that we would see your unifying element under the banner of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. And with that now, Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Immerse me that I would disappear and that you would appear. 
Fill me that I would do, that you would do through me what I cannot humanly do in and of myself. And God, I pray that you would show how intimate of a God you are, intimate with each of us, by the way that you speak now. Perform the therapy, the ministry you desire. In Jesus' name, amen. I would say this morning as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always have the final say. Let the word always be the authority. Now, in Genesis 10, if you read ahead, of course, again, what we're looking at is three sons. Remember, we've had the flood. The world has been cleansed in in its strangest way. And we have now a dad and his three sons. These three sons and their wives, one wife apiece, are going to then populate the entire earth. And what we have then is a list of those people, which, by the way, again, the boat has landed in Turkey, which means that every one of us at one point or another came from Turkey. Like it or not. I mean, if you think about it. And if we all came from this boat somewhere. And, and that becomes part of the fun. Now, understand, I'm, I'm reading this text. I mean, and normally, you know, I seek to memorize my text before I, I teach it. I'm looking at this text. I'm going, probably not going to memorize this. And yet in that, I'm, I'm on a bus and I'm, I'm praying and I'm reading through this text a few days ago. And then that's sort of, you know, those moments where you sort of drift in and out of a daydream. Well, it's one of those moments. And this is sort of what the Lord speaks to me in it. So here's the idea. We're on a bus. And as we're kind of on the bus, the bus driver turns around and says to us, okay, the next two stops, we're just not going to stop at the next two stops because, well, quite frankly, they're just not important. And my response, like yours, would be, Well, who gives you the right to make that decision? I mean, someone's bound to live here. Someone's bound to have some form of agenda at this spot. But no, rather, you would make that choice. And I start to realize that's what it comes like when we just sort of pick and choose our text in Scripture. We're the bus driver saying, well, we're not going to get off on this text because after all, it's 70-something names. Who really wants to stop there? I do. Because if God put it in Scripture, it's a bus stop. And if it's a bus stop, we should stop there. Now, in the last two weeks, I've had the privilege of actually having my in-laws come and visit. And I would say that whether my wife was here or not, or for that matter, whether we were recording. And, and it's really a fun thing because uh, and one thing is that both of them, both her father and her mother, both can chase their family trees down to like... The 1200s. Now, now that's a really bizarre thing for me because to be honest, on one side of my family, I'm not really sure who my grandfather is. And to be honest, I'm not sure my grandmother knows who my grandfather is. And so, I mean, so my family tree is a little bit more gnarly than my wife's. Now, on the other side of that, uh, on my wife's side, here's my father-in-law. And he's actually at this church. This is St. Bartholomew, by the way. Uh, and this is in Plymouth. And while we're actually there, we get to see this little brass guy. Isn't he a cute little guy there? Um, this is this is John sorry John Crocker Sir, oh, sorry, Sir John Crocker. Right. And Sir John, I mean, my wife's maiden name is Crocker. That's one of the reasons why she can bake so well. Um, anyways, and, and, and all of that, there was, there was just something really, really profound being at the St. Bartholomew Church. It's obviously a very old church. I think it was made in like the 11th century or the 12th century. And in there, there's, I mean, this guy's buried, or at least his bones are, are buried in there. And they have this cool little brass, you know, of, I don't know if that really looks like St. John or not, but nonetheless. And, and there was just something really profound to look at Suzanne's dad. Because as he's there in this church, there's just this moment where all of a sudden, he just sort of feels like he's attached. 
is attached to this church. He's attached to England. He's attached to us here uh, and the work that God is doing. Because at this particular moment, well, there's Sir John. And, you know, he's part of our family. Sir John, he's a knight and all that. And it's just this cool moment where he just realizes he's, he's part of this. Now, one of the reasons why we read through a chapter, to be honest, like chapter 10, and just kind of, just like, you know, for fun, maybe we'll try to get everyone to try to read a name, and then you're like, ah. In uh, it all, to be honest, it's just because we don't find an attachment to it. But really, that's the silly part, because the truth be told, it's our family tree too. And it's like, this is where, if you think about it, every one of us comes from the same family. I mean, somewhere between these three sons of Noah, we're all related. And that's kind of the way that this family tree goes. So the real question then is, who is your daddy? (laughs) Because in the end of it all, one of those three sons is going to be your dad, in essence. You're going to chase it down. So part of the fun of this is, all right, so which one of these guys is yours? Because by the time we're done here, perhaps you'll find it. Now, what's interesting is, again, it's about verses 2 to 5 will be the first. Uh, excuse me, it's Yefeth. Verses 6 to 20 is going to be Ham. And then verses 21 to 32, or the last part of this, is going to be Shem. Um, in that, for what, we'll, what it's worth, we'll have 14 names in the first, 28 names in the second, and then... 20-something names in the third, 26 names in the third. Uh, we're not going to develop them all, because if that be the case, I could probably bludgeon you all happily, because I love stuff like this. I get all excited and go, whoa, check out that guy. But I will pull out a handful that at least are sort of less debated. I mean, somewhere down the line, someone's going to go, oh, I just like this name, Uzal. I'm sure that I came from Uzal because I kind of dig his name. But, but in the end of it all, there are some that we can genuinely trace today, and that's kind of really key. One of the other things you'll find really intense in this, at least I have, is that when we start talking about people that are battling over this little land strip that we call Israel, and how many of them make their claim to actually be direct descendants of Muhammad, um, who, by the way, is a Dianite, and what you'll find is, is you're going to find that the people who would call themselves of the Arab nation, um, be that the Turks, be that the Jordanians, be that the Lebanese, you're going to find the majority of those people can't, they actually, they're even from the wrong sun to actually make that claim in text. And that's just kind of a fun thing in and of itself. So, with that in mind, here's where we started, if you remember. This goes back to chapter 5. And remember that Adam, Seth, and the reason for Seth, and again, his name, does anyone remember what his name means? Replacement compensation, because he was then the son that sort of, in essence, replaced Chabel, if you remember that. And Abel, does anyone remember what Abel's name means? Excellent, his name means nothing. Who wants to be be born with that name? Hi, this is my first son, containment. And here's my second son, nothing. I mean, it's like twins, and you're like, oh, a boy, oh, there's a a spare. All right, so... So Seth, Enos, Hanin, and then Machalael, Yared, Enoch, Matushelech, Lamech, and Noah. And remember how we looked at those and what they, what they meant, how glorious it was. As we notice again in chapter 5, that we started with the name Adam. Adam, which means man. If man compensation for his mortal containment is that the blessed God, like hallelujah, Machalael, blessed God, Yared means he descends. Enoch means dedicated to or teaching. Methuselah, his death brings Lamech, he who mourns, Noach, rest. And again, 
Man's compensation for his mortal containment, blessed God shall descend, dedicated to this, his death shall bring the one who mourns rest. And that was, again, the gospel in chapter 5. How fun that was. And as we looked at all of that, what we got, in essence, were ten names that ended up with three. Next week, if we get as far as we are this week, we'll actually be able to look and go, wow, there's ten more names that end up with three. And that's how we get to Abraham. Now, in that text, we'll go from that then, and this is what we're basically looking at today. Um, and you're going, oh man, am I in a seminar? Hey, look, at the cool thing is if it's in Scripture, it's important. Will you agree with me on that? Now, let's just say it'll never be the deficit of God, it'll be my deficit. How cheeky would I be to say, God, you should remove this. God's saying, hello, you're just not smart enough to get what I put in there, or you're not at that state in your walk to understand why I put this. You will get it. But I have learned this, that God never builds the fifth floor of a building without building the first four And if we tend to think at any point that we're so brilliant that we're not getting the penthouse, it may just be that God isn't built up to that point in our walk yet. There's stuff. And the cool thing is as we continue to go through Scripture over and over, every time we'll get more. Well, with that in mind, this is what we're looking at. Noah has three sons, Yafet, Chem, and Shem. Now, Yafet, for what it means, means expanse. And it's interesting because if you remember last time, the, the sort of prayer, the blessing over him from dad, who's, by the way, coming out of a, out of a drunken, naked stupor. Uh, it's in Scripture. Read it for yourself. Last chapter um, says, by the way, may God expand your faith. And that's interesting because in essence, literally, may God expand expanse. Ham, by the way, means hot. Here's our hot guy. And, uh, and Ham, by the way, you can see why Ham isn't kosher later because majority of these names are going to be names that are going to be at enmity with uh, Israel from that point on. And then Shem, and by the way, the name Shem means name. I mean, in fact, today, the um, classic Orthodox community would say, and even many Messianic communities would say, that the name of God is so beautiful and so perfect that, he's not, that you can't even, you're not even right to say his name. And so they'll actually, they're saying, in the Baruch HaShem of the night, blessed be the name of God, they would actually say, Baruch HaShem, blessed be the name. And that's as far as they'll take it, because the idea is they don't want to go beyond that. And so you'll see all sort of the names with this. Now, somewhere in all of that, like it or not, you're in here somewhere. It doesn't matter who you are, where you came from, what your color is, what your shape is, what your size is. You're in here somewhere. Because this is, in essence, then the birth of every nation, every people, every language. It's all right here. This is sort of a very rough overview. So it looks like you can't read that because um, it's very poorly my, my fault. But that's your feth. He'll be, by the way, European Asia. Chem, which, by the way, will be then um, areas of, of Africa, Canaan, and so forth. And then, ultimately, the Middle East, the Shemites. By the way, Semitic, Shem. Semitic, does that make sense? Uh, and that's kind of where you get the term from. Now, there becomes an inevitable question, and then we'll dig into the text. Basically, how do three suns have all of these colors on them, for instance? How do they all... I mean, are some going to be taller than others? Well, see, you don't have to actually be that brilliant or even enormously scientific to realize that within every one of us is the DNA for every one of us. That's part of the fun of it. You can do that with dogs. You realize you can take any two dogs, and within those two dogs is the DNA for every particular species in one manner or another, given enough time. Well, I'd like to just show you a little bit of that. Here's three of them. The Hodgson twins, the Richardson twins, and the Durant twins times two. You may not be able to see it very well, but these are all twins. These aren't kids, and there's no adoption involved in this. And in this case, look at the sort of color of the parents, and look at the kids. That girl's as white as that girl's as white as Scandinavia. She basically belongs in IKEA, and and, and her sister obviously is very very different from that. This is a black and white couple, as you can see here. Now, the only reason I say that is. 
you can't, it isn't like, how does the husband say, where you been half the time? I mean, these are twins. I mean, there's no way that, you know, and, and I just love how God just knows that he can make people any color he wants, anytime he wants. Uh, now, that don't use that as an excuse if something kind of happens and you've been living a lascivious lifestyle and say, okay, so he looks like the postman, but he really isn't. Uh, truth be told in it, though. God has within every one of us that ability. So for us to be able to say somebody's darker skin couldn't be a son of Noah is as ridiculous as anything. So, are you ready to walk with this? No. The first one will be the one we develop the most, even though it has the least amount of names, and that's because a lot of them are quite pertinent. So, here we go. Here's the first of them. Chapter 10, verse 1. Now, this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah. Shem, Chem, Yefeth. The sons were born to him after the flood. Verse 2. The sons of Yefeth were Gomer. Now, coming from America, I already have an image in my head when I see the name Gomer. I think of a guy with his hat turned sideways. He's fiction something on a fake-up truck. Not exactly the same Gomer we see here. Magog, you're perhaps some of you are familiar with him from Ezekiel 38 and 39. You can do that research on your own. Madai, Yevan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, Rifath, Togalma. The sons of Yavan, Elisha, not, not like the Elijah that you're familiar with perhaps in 1 Kings or 2 Kings. Rifath, Togarma, Elisha, Tarshish, Kitim, Dodanim. And from these, the coastland people of the Gentiles were separated into the lands, everyone according to their language, according to their families, and to their nations. That's our first. That's our first group. Now that again is Yafeth. Now Yafeth, again, means expanse. And by the way, he really does live up to his name. Yefeth, by the way, in essence, will be the father of the Caucasian people, in essence. Gomer, there, by the way, just to make your life really complicated, there's the Sumerians, Sumerians, and Sumerians. Uh, Sumerians are, by the way, in the Persian Gulf area. The Sumerians will be the people that will be Israeli and half part, part Israeli that will be in the land of Israel after the captivity of the Assyrians. And then the Sumerians, which will be near the Black Sea. This is the Sumerian, the father of the Sumerians, north of the Black Sea. As a matter of fact, Plutarch will actually say he is the father of the people north of the Black Sea, which makes him the father of the Germanic, the French, the Spanish, the Celtic, and the Eastern Europeans. Now, if you are, just by show of hands, have a Germanic, French, Spanish, Celtic, or Eastern European background, raise your hand right now. Okay, there you go. Guess what? You can look at Gomer and go, Daddy! All right. So, damn, I'm so happy that you're my dad. Now, Magog, there's a few names that are both seven. By the way, God doesn't say here he's listing every name. Could you imagine if he did list every name? Here's the interesting part. God gives us 70-something names and yet doesn't give every name. So he hand-selects these names. And there's some of them, I mean, there's only some that I can give you in this moment without your brains exploding. But here's a few. Magog, for what it's worth, Josephus would say this is the Scythians. Uh, in essence, in its simplest sense, even as a Babylonian king would be writing to a pharaoh, these are the people uh, that we would call today the Russians. As a matter of fact, a lot of these people will play into that. Again, very fair-skinned individuals. Um, Medai is the Medes. Um, by the way, anyone of Russian descent? Okay, well, there we go. Um, we'll wait till Alessia comes here. We'll do this again. Uh, Madai. Madai, by the way, is where we get the term the Medes, like the Medo-Persians. By the way, today, what are the Medes? They're the Kurds. 20% of Iran is still Kurdish. And that's these people, Madai. It also, by the way, is the Indian population. We'll bro to the Indian population as well. Now, that's East and West Indian. So... If you are from the Kurdish background or from an East or Western Indian background, go ahead and raise your hand right now. 
Okay, that's a couple maybe. Well, there we go. Uh, Mishech, by the way, is the derivation that will ultimately evolve into Moscow. Tobolsk, by the way, that's northern Russia. And then there's Tiras, and Tiras would be the Thracians, that's the Asian Europeans, or we might even say the Italians, anyone of an Italian descent. I know there's at least one. You can say Tiras. There you go, thanks, Dad. Now, Gomer, by the way, was the father, and again, I'm at verse 2, or verse 3. Gomer was the uh, father of a man named Ashkenaz. Can you say Ashkenaz? Ashkenaz. That's good. Oh, come on now. You can't say this like, you know. (laughs) Ashkenaz. Nice. Ashkenaz, by the way, is still used to this day. That's Eastern European Germanic background. And how do I know that? Because even to this day, there is a major movement called Aliyah, which is a desire for people of Jewish background to move back to Israel to make a permanent pilgrimage there. And of that, then they actually have to do decide what kind of Jew you are. I mean, that's part of what it is. And part of it would be the Sephardics. Um, those who were actually born in the Eretz Sabras, which, by the way, is a cactus. It's nice. It's like, oh, you were born and raised here. You're a local. We're going to call you cactus. Um, and they're actually very proud of that's kind of the culture we are. And then there are those that are called the Ashkenazi. And the Ashkenazi are Jewish people that are from Eastern Europe. So even to this day, this term is used in regards to that. So when you say, oh, you're Ashkenazi, you're an Eastern European Jew is basically the way they consider it. And they'll take you all the way back to Genesis tend to find that. And here you are. Now, Rufath, uh, for what it's worth, is the Patagonians. That, by the way, um, this term will ultimately be Rirof. Yerof is where we get the term Europe from. Is Rufath. How do you like that? Tugarma, by the way. Tugarma, by the way, are the people of Turkey and of Armenia. The Armenians will follow their chase to this day. They will actually talk about the celebration of Tugarma. The sons of Yvan, Elisha. Elisha, by the way, are uh, the Greeks... And the other side of Turkey, Kitim, by the way, is the word for Cyprus. They're the people of the land of, of the island of Cyprus. Dudanim are the people of Rhodes. And so in, in the essence of it all, then, verse 5, it says, these are the coastland people, the Gentiles. Now, let me read these again, and you can raise your hand. If you're Indo-European, Indian, Western, or Eastern, North of the Black Sea, Germanic, French, so forth, Italian, Russian, go ahead and, or for that matter, Armenian or of Turkish descent. Go ahead and raise your hand. Well, look at that. Okay, so those of you who raised your hand in that way, Yafet is your daddy. So, however, next week, here's the cool part, you'll actually get to meet your other daddy, who, by the way, how many daddies do you get? Um, you get, I mean, again, we're just talking about, you know, patriarchs, because we'll get to meet Abraham, or Abram. Now, verse 6. The son of Ham. So let's get to him. The son of Ham was Cush, Mizraim, Put, Canaan. Sons of Cush were Shiva, Havila, Sabta, Raama, Sabdecha. And the sons of Raama were Shiva, Dedan, Cush. We got Nimrod. And just, boy, doesn't his name sound a little bit... No wonder why I grew up fighting in a name like Nimrod. He began... Is anyone in here named Nimrod? Okay, just want to make sure I don't totally offend anyone. Um, he began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the, before the Lord. And be, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Achad, uh, Kena. Notice the term Kana, like is in Canaan. Um, the land of Shinar. And from them went to Assyria. He built Nineveh, Urbot, Ir, Kala. And resident between Nineveh and Kala. That's the principal city. Now, it's a party that kind of goes, well, that's a little strange. 
We have 70 names we're going to kind of mow through here. And of all that, he gives actually four or five verses to one guy that's named Nimrod, who, by the way, tends to be a legend in his own time. Now, first of all, let's get to verse 6. Now, you remember already that last chapter, there's this foreboding element in regards to this Canaan guy. Remember that? Because this was the guy who saw his dad when he was, who, by the way, was Noah, who was drunk and naked, and he ran out and told his brothers, you guys, dad's drunk and naked. You know what that means? We could go get drunk and naked because dad is. And they're like, ay vey. And they go and grab this clothes, this cloak and walk backwards to not see dad and drop it on him to cover. And it talks about love covering a multitude of sins. And in that, when dad wakes up, not just from his sleep, but we read from his wine, Dad says, curse be Canaan. And you think, Canaan? Was Canaan even born? That's important to note. Was he even born when Dad makes this statement? We really don't even know. But if he wasn't born before that point, I'm not naming any of my kids Canaan. How about you? The sons of Canaan were Cush. Now, Cush, perhaps you might be familiar with. Cush is the father of black Africa. So here's a father, by the way, you might say, this is a guy that, that's Eastern and Western Africa. Anybody basically who would have some form of rather dark skin, somehow usually will chase their lineage. Somehow to Cush. Some will say Ethiopia. It's much larger than Ethiopia. Um, so by virtue of that, if you feel like somehow you have a relationship with Cush, go ahead and raise your hand. Okay, that's some of you. Mizraim. Mizraim, by the way, is Egypt. It's interesting, again, if you know Hebrew, im, I am, is plural. And you go, oh, it's interesting. What's so plural about Egypt? Well, Egypt was known as two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, with the delta in between. And this is the combination of both. So Mizraim is the father of Egypt. Put is the father of Libya. Canaan, by the way, is like as in Canaan. That's um, as well. The sons of Cush were Shiva, Havilah, Sabtav, Rama, Sibtecha. And then we get this guy, Nimrod. Why him? Why in the middle of all this? Because to be honest, if God doesn't tell us about this, chapter 11, the first nine verses don't make as much sense. Now, I want to remind you, the way that God set up this whole thing before even the, the flood came was that there were two groups of people. There were those that called on the name of the Lord, and there were those who didn't call on the name of the Lord. Those who called on the name of the Lord, by the way, were known for their pursuit of God. Those who weren't calling on the name of the Lord were those who were identified by violence and by rampant sexuality. That was basically the kind of way it was seen. And then what God, before he pronounces judgment on the whole world, he says the entire lot of people are basically now have all been influenced to the side. Everybody's violent. Everybody's just rampant as many wives as they want, however they want, whenever they want. And God looks and says, it's time to do some cleaning. And this isn't God just saying, I just want to kill people because I get my jollies out of it. It's saying, look, at my people have ceased to have any influence on the world but one man. We don't even read the man and his kids because, to be honest, he doesn't even seem to have children when God initially calls him into this. If... The 120 years before the flood is the way that when God says, my spirit will no longer strive, means the word to plead or to beg uh, with mankind. His days will be 120 years. And if that is 120 years before the flood, his boys weren't born until 100 years before the flood. So that tells me that that call was made before his children were born. With that in mind, God says, look it, again, if every human being on the world is going to basically live like the unsaved, then it's time for God to step in. And that's exactly what he says in regards to the end times. It will always be the same, beloved. It'll never be that the world is dark, and therefore God says, I need to step in. Because truth be told, darkness is not the overcomer of light. Darkness is the absence of light. 
And if God's people who are called to be the light of the world seek to put their light under a bushel, hide it, and try to become more like the world, what you're going to find in the end is that God says it's time to pull the plug because the only thing that's keeping this world in any way at bay is my own people. And, if, and you know, I've heard it said, we shouldn't be surprised that sinners are willing to sin if saints aren't willing to be holy. And, and God calls us to be lights. And, and, and in this world, it's like you really want to blend in with this world around you. You're the only living thing in the morgue. Do you really want to actually act dead in front of everyone else? Everyone else is drowning in the world around them. And you are the one person that's got God's holy floaties on. And, and with that, you shouldn't act like you're drowning among them. You can. And you can trade in all the things that God has for you. But what good is it? And so then we get to this particular character, and notice again, we start to see that whole concept once again borne out. What we read about this guy, Nimrod, is that he began to be a mighty one on the earth, verse 8. That word mighty one, by the way, for what it's worth, is the same word that we read in chapter 6 when we read that there were giants in the land. The word is gibur. What you say? Gibur. I'll try it again. Gibur. Now, gibur means warrior, tyrant, despot, bully. And thus we would use a term like giant. If you think about it, you're in elementary school, you're in primary school, who's the bully? That's the big kid. Tends not to be the littlest kid in the class. That would be odd. You know, in every class there's one kid and who knows what happened, but somewhere he woke up one day and he's wearing his dad's jeans. You know, And he, he shows up in a class and everybody else is still trying to figure out how to put on a pair of jeans. And the kid looks over and he goes, wow, I can actually score some lunch money before we're done on all of this. And you realize that kid tends to be the despot in the class, the tyrant. And what he tells us is, all of a sudden, amidst this group of people, Ham, by the way, is this guy named Nimrod, who for what it's worth, he's just a guy that is just, he's bullying everyone. He's a, and it tells us he's a, in the term that we read here, mighty hunter before the Lord, verse 9, look at it with me. Here, a little bit of Hebrew with me. Say this if you would. Gibur. Tzir. Lepani Adonai. Gibur, the word for tyrant, again, or warrior. The other word, tzir, and the word tzir means, in essence, to chase, to pursue, to hunt. And then we have the pani. And pani, by the way, means face. And then Adonai. What he was, if, according to this text, is in the simplest sense, he was a tyrannical pursuer in, right in the face of God. Now you go, well, what is it that he was hunting? Was it that he was God was impressed by the fact that this guy could take down some fowl and eat it for dinner? Well, what it appears to be is that this man was, in a sense, he was a very constructive, powerful, constructive in the sense of his own buildings, not in, man, in God's to God's. He was a very popular, powerful tyrant that killed people, and he was good at it, and he did it right in God's face. Now, if you've got any children, you know what it's like, the difference between a child that's like, I didn't really get all of that, versus a child that looks you straight in the face and does something in rebellion. Now, what God had made really clear in the last chapter is there is a radical, and if you were here last week, you remember this, there is a radical difference between every other animal in the world and humankind. And God says, those can be food for you, but people are off limits, and I'm going to require blood for blood. That was how the chapter ended, was this clear call that man's blood was something that you were going to have to account for. And then all of a sudden we read in all of it, there's this guy and he has no problem hunting people right in God's face. Now that sounds an awful lot like Cain to me. Doesn't it sound like Cain to you? And what we read, by the way, is this guy builds a few places. 
Now, we don't read that about a lot of these other people. All we read is these are people ultimately that will progenate something we can relate to. This guy, we get these verses, verses 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12. And what we read is this guy had no problem killing people or hunting right in the face of God. And then he builds these cities. One of them is Babel. By the way, that is, of course, ultimately Shinar is the area of Babylon. Babel, of course, is the father of Babylon. And there's also the area of Assyria, Nineveh. Perhaps you're familiar with Nineveh. Nineveh, if you remember, becomes the capital of Assyria. Now, in roughly about the 900s BC, well, right, right, right on this side of 1000 BC, the nation of Israel divides. The northern area are ten tribes led by Solomon's commander. His name, by the way, is Yeroboam, who, by the way, leads the people into idolatry. By the way, no sin is mentioned more in Scripture attributed to a person than Yeroboam's more than 20 times, 22 times. You'll see the sin of Yeroboam. Would you like that in Scripture? That that's how you're known? Is the sin of... Well, he was. Because in other words, all he was doing was saying, let's trade in this other God because you have to go to Jerusalem. That's not our territory anymore. Why don't we make it convenient for you to do it this way? And the northern area is going to be taken captive in 721, 722 B.C. by Assyria. That's, again, a, by the way, the capital of which is Nineveh. You're familiar with a prophet that really had no interest in going to Nineveh. They were known for being horribly wicked. And, no, and, and for what it's worth, Jonah had no interest in seeing them saved. He thought, if anyone should burn in hell, these guys are prime target. And, of course, the, and what's interesting is, is that Jonah knew how merciful God was. That's why he didn't go. Because when he actually tells this, all right, 40 days and you're fried, and then he sits on a, on a, you know, a cliff waiting, and then they don't fry, he's like, oh, I knew you were merciful, that's the problem. Oh, what a prophet. And then the, and the guy goes, the end. And you're like, what? There's no, like, I mean, this guy's like, a, this is a static character. Doesn't he repent? Doesn't he come around? Don't, there's no warm fuzzy at the end of this. Where's my Shakespearean ending? Where's my sitcom? It all wraps up in a half hour. And you leave there going, what a jerk. And God goes, yeah, that's the way I wanted it. You realize the movie where everyone end, dies at the end usually is someone's trying to make a point. You know that? I mean, I remember the first time, and I don't recommend you see movies like this, but I, it was before I really had the same conviction I do now. But I saw, I think I saw the play, Hair. And in the end of it all, just to ruin it, the guy, the chief character dies. Um, there you go. Um, but if he didn't, it wouldn't have got the point across that this whole idea of sending people to war was bad, but to get you to really like this character, and then he dies, and then you're like, ah, this is horrible. And it's like the writer's like, that's what I intended. So you would hate this thing. And God's like, look at I'm, I'm putting Jonah out that same way, so you can go, what a jerk. And God goes, well, now, hey, hello, there is a little bit of Jonah in you. You know, the part that goes, ah, oh, let them fry. If that's the case, and you hate the character, find him in you, pal, and give him over. You repent because he didn't. Now this Nimrod character, he's building all these places in Shinar, which is Babylon, Iran, Iraq today, which by the way, God makes really clear, will be the marketing center point for all of the world before this whole thing comes down. Hmm. Another thing he makes clear is that the church will have no influence anymore. And by the way, that isn't because darkness overcomes it, it's just because the church chooses to die from its own choice of death. Gets too comfortable, gets too apathetic, becomes too isolated and, divi and divided. All the things that can kill any other body. If you dismember a body, it will bleed to death. So this character, Nimrod, by the way, he will also be known as Marmuk or Ashtar. Perhaps you're familiar, he's worshipped as witch. His dad, or his mom, by the way, um, according to traditions, the name Simaramis. Perhaps you're familiar with her. She was the original queen of heaven. 
to this day worshipped in some, even in some churches as the Queen of Heaven. You can go to Israel and go to Saint Pierre de Calcantus, that's the Saint Peter of the Crowing Rooster, who names a church after a place where the guy falls. Nonetheless, and you can go into the top floor of it, and there's a whole altar to the Queen of Heaven. And all of that goes all the way back to this. In essence, every bad religion can be found right back in this, for what it's worth. Now, let's wrap around verse 13. Because, we'll, again, we'll build onto that in chapter 11. Mizraim, begat Ludim, Anamim, Lahabim, Naftuchim. And then so we have these names, Patosim, Kalashim, by the way, by the ones, Kasluchim, um, or those from which came the Philistines, and the Kaftorim. So already I have the Egyptians, which, by the way, are the sons of Ham. You see that here? I have the Philistines, that are here the sons of Ham. By the way, the Arab nation will be from the sons of Shem. So it means anyone that you can find in Ham can't be Arab, can't be Arab by birth because these people are from, these people are Hamites, if that makes sense. So, if you're from Turkey, if you're calling yourself Palestinian, which by the way is the derivation of Philistines, if you call yourself Egyptian, well then clearly you're actually, interesting, if you call yourself Palestinian, according to this, you're actually more related to the Egyptian because your dad is the father of Egypt, for what that's worth. Can it be gone? If you're going like, man, this stuff is so over my head, don't worry. Again, I just want to lay this foundation. Someday you're going to read through this again and you're going to wake up and go, oh, I get it. Now, Canaan begot, verse 15, Sidon. By the way, Sidon will be the father of the Phoenicians or the Lebanese. Again, also not Arab because they're Hamites. Also, Heth, that's the Hittites. The Jebusite, that's the people who occupied Jerusalem before David. The Ammonites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Arakites, the Sinites. Notice these are people groups now. And the God makes special note of that. The Arvadite, the Zimbalite, and the Hamathite. Now, what's so big of a deal of this? It's interesting because when God tells the nation Israel to actually conquer the land of Canaan, he will actually give six people groups, and they're the people groups that are listed here. And they're all Hamites, for what it's worth. Um, with that, then it says, um, and the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon, that's all in today. For instance, the Eretire in Sidon, that's in Lebanon. So you go down towards Gerar to Gaza, by the way, a place that can be a bit of a hot spot today. As you go towards Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zboim, as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham, according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands, and in their nations. So, let me ask you, can you find your background in Egypt? or in Babylonian, Philistine territory, Sidon, Lebanese, and so forth. Is there anyone here with that background? Go ahead and raise your hand. Okay. Last group of people. Verse 21. And the children were also born to Shem. Remember, his name means name. Now, what's your name? Name. All right. He was the father, and notice there's a special mention here. He's the father of Heber. Can you say Heber? And that is important, although he will not be the immediate father. Uh, well, in, in essence, and the, the point of it is, is that it's, he's not going to be the only son. He just kind of mentions him in verse 21 as if, by the way, pick special note of this guy. Why is that so important? Because Eber is an Eberite. And someone who is an Eberite, by the way, is where we get the term Hebrew from. This term, this guy, Heber. Now, interesting, because the term means beyond or crossing over. Literally, here's the fun thing. You have a group of people that are called Palestinians or Philistines, and their name literally means not from here, or foreigner. And then you have a group of people who would call themselves Hebrews, which means from somewhere else, arguing over land, 
Think about that. There's the foreigner and not, or the not from here and from somewhere else arguing over land. Somebody else has to have a right to say who this land belongs to because by the virtue of their names, neither one of them should claim the land unless somebody who owns the land has a right to give it. And that's why, by the way, to this day, that land's in such one of the purposes or reasons is that because neither group, if they're going to claim the living God, because he's the one who has the title deed to it, can actually issue off the land. No, whatever that's worth, it tells us that he was the brother of Yefeth, the elder. Remember, his name means expand. Verse 22. The sons of Shem were Elam. By the way, Elam is the father of Persia. Uh, Ashur, that's, by the way, as in Assyrians. Afaksad, which, by the way, will be very important because he will ultimately be the father of Abram. And so we're going to chase his line here in a moment. Lud uh, and Aram. Aram, by the way, are the Syrians. So if you really want to say you have some form of Arabic background, if you were Syrian, if you were Assyrian or Persian, at least you're from the same father, if that makes sense on the family tree, uh, with that. Um, then it says the sons of Aram were Uz. Is anyone familiar with Uz at all? For instance, there was a wizard of Uz. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> if you actually read the book of Job, it'll tell us that Job was from the land of Uz. By the way, for what it's worth. Uh, Uz, Ahul, Geter, and Mash. Arfaksad began Selach, Selach began Iber. There you go. So, Iber uh, then were born two sons. One's name was Pegleg. No, that's not true. His name was Peleg, the pirate, uh, in the days that the earth was divided. And God makes this special little mention here. The earth was divided. What in the world does that mean? Well, it's going to mean, here's the argument. It's either going to mean one of two things, or it could mean both. That's the fun of actually not having to make the decision. One is that if you can take all the continents, you should be able to shove them together into one giant land mass. As a matter of fact, it's quite suspicious how the shapes fit in quite well. And so someone will say, well, this is the place where God divided the continents. And someone will go, oh, yeah, well, listen, Mr. Smart Depends. According to this text, it looks like if you do the time in it all, it's the time when God destroyed or divided the languages at Babel. So which one is it? And I go, excuse me, where in Scripture does it say that I have to decide between one or the other? Could it be both? As a matter of fact, when we read that God divides the languages, what we'll read is that God divides the languages and then disperses them. Well, that's an easy way to disperse them. And he's like, well, how do you get them to another place? The guy goes, don't worry about that. And he just kind of moves them over. In the end of it all, it's interesting because Peleg, for what it's made, his name means divisions. And so it's going, and you can see him saying, well, after all, he was named divisions because it was the time when everything was being divided. So there you go. And he was the father of Joktan. Joktan began Almodad, and I, what a fun name, Almodad. Remember the Almodad. Shilech, Hazarmech, and then Yara, Hadaramach, Uzal, Dikla, Oba, Abmiel, and then Rabael, Shiva, and then a name named, in verse 29, look at it with me. I don't ever want to miss a word, Ophir. That may not mean much to you, but God says, okay, remember that? Because 12 different times in Scripture, Ophir will be mentioned. And it's always mentioned outside of here of a place where the gold is so pure you can see through it. That's an interesting thought. First Kings 9, 10, and 22. One Psalm, Psalm 45, I believe it's verse 9 or so. And then in Isaiah 13 as well, you'll find that there's this gold that is so precious you can see through it. And it's always called the gold of Ophir. Ophir, Havilah. And then the last name, verse 29, Jobab. Man, you, you would think Jobab was the son of Gomer. My, I'm an ex Gomer, and this is my son Jobab. There are a lot of people that believe, for what it's worth, that Jobab happens to be the guy that we affectionately call Job. No, you can't prove it either way. So, for what it's worth, it's just fun to think about. 
And we're done. Jobab, sell for what that's worth. Now, all these were the sons of Joktan. And their dwelling place was from Misha as you go down to Sephara, mountains of the east. These were the sons of Shem, according to their families, according to their languages, and their lands, according to their nations. These were the families of the sons of Noah, according to their generations, and their nations. And from all of these nations, they were divided after the flood. Now, we've just gone through an entire chapter, 72 names. Can you believe it? Now, here's my question to you. Do you feel like you kind of know at least which one of these three is yours? Okay, well then, here we go. Let's just see for the sake of it all. On one side, we have Yefeth, then we have Chem, and then we have Shem. So, if you can chase your lineage back to Shem, raise your hand right now. Okay, you've got some Shemites in here, or Semites. If you can chase your lineage back to Chem, raise your hand right now. Okay, you've got some Hams here. And actually, some of you, they ain't that the truth. Okay. Now, if you can chase your lineage back to Yafeth, raise your hand right now. Here's the problem. If you're an American, like some of us, we could probably say, might be all of these. You know what I'm saying? It's like, actually, probably is. And that's kind of the fun. When someone says, are you Jewish? Maybe. Are you, uh, well, are, are you, well, how do you know? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but I will say this. In the end of it all, for those people who are chasing back their family trees or they're chasing down their lines and they're saying, and if you actually look at this chapter, what we're left with is we got a whole glob of names from which we can all chase our lineage and two really important points that he throws in the middle of it all. There's this guy that has this thing about killing people in front of others, and he's a legend. Because it says, like everyone says, Nimrod, mighty hunter before the face of God. It says, Nimrod was a mighty hunter before the face of God. And you know what everyone said? Oh. That's Nimrod, a mighty hunter in the face of God. I mean, this was, everyone knew Nimrod. It's like today, he's like that day's Chuck Norris. You know, everyone knows. And and so that we got this character, and again, he builds Babel, which for what it's worth means, Bar means gate, El is an Elohim, or Elcha means God, gate to God. Very important. On the other side, we also have this point where God separates everything. Those are the two points we have in here outside of all these names. Are you following me on all that? And that's why you need to get into the next nine verses. Because now we get into historical text. Look at what it says then. And by the way, again, these were the families of the sons of Noah, verse 32, according to their generations and their nations. And from all these nations, they were divided again on the earth after the flood. Verse 11, or chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. Hmm. There was a sefach and debar. Sefach, by the way, means bound. Actually, language is the word that would be inferred from it. And the word speech is the bar, which means cause or word or advice or purpose. So you have a whole group of people now that are unified. And they are all unified under a common language, and they're all unified under a common cause. I came to pass, they journeyed from east, and they found the plain in the land of Shinar. Does anyone remember where Shinar is? That's the land of Iraq. That's Babylon today. And again, who seems to be the person that's building in Shinar? Who is it? Nimrod. Nimrod's sort of, it's Nimrod's construction company all over Shinar. So, oh, hey, by the way, for what it's worth, a couple things I did want to mention really quick. There was one other one. Um, in all of these particular people back, because it, it would behoove me not to, you know, to say this, um, we had the you know, Hittites and all of those other people, but forgive me for missing this. Um, back in the, the people of Ham, there was the Sinites. And that's verse 17 of the last chapter. And the only reason I say that is the Sinites, if you don't know who the Sino people are today, or the Sin people today, 
Does anyone know, for instance, the Sino-Japanese War? Sino to this day are the Chinese. And so they actually can chase their lineage, and they get their name right from this, from what it's worth. So, um, okay, back in our text. It came to pass, they were in one language, they were in one cause, and it came to pass as they journeyed, verse 2, from the east, they found the plain of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And then they said, verse 3, come, let us make a name for ourselves. We want to build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heaven, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad the whole earth. Notice there are three basic things. Here's our text that we're looking at. And here are the three things. Let us build ourselves a city whose tower reaches to the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. And it's interesting because the father of every other religion, hear me out, please hear me on this. According to scripture, there are only two religions in all of the world. You could spend your entire life trying to figure out every religion and, you know, as far as the semantics and so forth. But according to scripture, there are only two religions. There have only been two groups of people from the beginning. There have been the group of people that called on the name of the Lord and the the people who didn't. There were the people who were God's blessed in that sense, and there were those who, by the way, who turned their back on God and had no interest in living in His presence. And it's always been that way. By the time you get to 1 John, right towards the end of this beautiful book, it'll tell us that they're the sons of the devil and the sons of God. And it doesn't tell us that that's some form of DNA work. It's in regards to a person's choice of who they're going to choose as their parentage. And from Scripture, because it tells us, beloved, how... You know, behold what manner of love the Father has lavished on us that we would even be called His children. And it doesn't tell us that we were called His children because somehow we were, we were you know, some kind of physical DNA thing happened. What it tells us is we, that was something that happened by adoption, according to the book of Romans, because we accepted the gift of Jesus. Now, the reason I say that is, is that the two religions are basically this. Here is our first religion, or might I say our second, because our first would say would be God's. But man's religion, according to this, is three things. Notice, let's build ourselves a city whose tower reaches up into heavens, and then let us make a name for ourselves. And this just becomes, in its simplest sense, everything that you can find. In the essence of it all, there's some form of tyrant. Some form of tyrant. I remember who sort of sees over this area, and that is Nimrod, a mighty hunter in the face of God, who again has no problem with violence. Again, the very thing that we saw that God eradicated when he brought the flood in the first place. And God says, look, it, here's another guy that looks like the people we wiped out back on the flood. And with that, he says, look it, with that, let's just, yeah, we're going to get everyone together and we all are unified. Come on, let's all join hands and sing Kumbaya. We all have everything in common. We're all children of God. Has anyone ever told you that? Scripture says we're not all children of God. Like it or not, the Scripture says we are all sinners desperately in need of saving. That's what we have in common. We do have something in common with the whole world. We are drowning people desperately in need of rescue. That's what we have in common. And we have that in common with anyone. It doesn't matter what culture, what nation, what age, what education or social strata. We are all flawed creatures in need of God's intervention. That's what we have in common. But if you try to say, well, we're all just sort of children of God, in other words, let's sort of poo-poo the concept of our need and let's unify ourselves, immediately what we find is there's this weird false unity. And by the way, the Bible makes clear there's going to be a false religion that will rise in the end and it'll be exactly this. And it'll be led by a tyrant. Ultimately, that's what the Bible makes clear. The second thing is let's build a tower whose top is in the heavens. And this is, by the way, the most classic issue in regards to all other religion, and that is, I'm the one who has to do the work. In its simplest sense, every other religion is, I do the work and hope that God or the gods or whatever respond favorably to it. And I've learned something really interesting traveling around the world and doing mission work. I've learned that it seems like every other god 
You worship to keep them away from you. Have you learned that? I'm in Kolkata, and there is a 90-something-year-old man rolling naked down a hill with pieces of glass and broken bone, and you ask, what is this man doing? Does it, should he at least swipe, you know, wipe away these pieces of bone? He goes, no, actually, put them there. See, Kali, according to... But there's 33 million gods, according to the Hindu religion. Kali's a god of destruction. And you do this to beat yourself up so that he won't destroy you himself. And I thought, wow. Do you really want to worship a god you, to keep away? If I do enough good works and I work really hard, I'll keep his wrath away from me. Doesn't that sound like just about everything else? If I work really hard, maybe, and maybe you don't even want to put a character to it. It's just a mist or a, or a sort of system of the world. And if I'm nice enough, maybe then something nice will come back to me and the bad will stay away. If I kiss the Blarney Rock enough times, if I pet enough puppies and give to enough charities, the problem is it still fits within Christendom too. People do it here as well. If I go to church enough, give enough, and try hard enough and memorize enough of these things and, and make sure that it seems like I've gotten my thing all covered. And let me ask you, is that what you're doing today? Is that your reason for being here? And somehow in it, if you do enough of this, God will respond favorably and he'll go, oh, okay, I guess I'll let you into heaven. Because that happens to be man's religion, not God's. And notice the last part is, let us make a name for ourselves. Hey, I've got to make myself important. I'm going to make a name for myself. I'm going to work really hard. And I'm going to build this tower so big that God's going to look from heaven and go, whoa, that's a cool tower. Well, I bet you can see this from space. What's interesting is God makes the special note that God actually had to come down to look at it. That's how petty it was in the side of it. You know, this man's like, oh, this thing's, whoa, man. People are going to look and go, whoa. And then God's going to like, what? What? What is it? What? 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 What was it? That? Oh, did I step on that? What was? And, and by the way, God makes it this way. Okay, we'll wait till next class. After Jim, we'll finish the study. Okay. Hear me out. God says that our merit, our righteousness, is filthy rags in His sight. And if you'll pardon me for saying as adults here, it's dirty menstrual cloths. That's the term. And understand, it's not just that God wanted to get really gross with us. A dirty menstrual cloth, and I don't want to elaborate too much, but it's the very token and emblem of your uncleanness. You see, what you're saying in your own righteousness is, God, look at all this stuff I did without you. Let me in. But the, but the most important thing to God is your relationship with him. Did you get that yet? Every chapter in this book, God makes really clear the most important thing is those who uh, is to have a relationship with you. And if what you're saying is, look at all this stuff I did without you, what part of that blesses God? Because what He really wants is, hey, look at this stuff we did together. God's looking to build memories with you, to build monuments with you. Not for you to work really hard and somehow in it, then maybe God will look and go, yeah, that's good enough. But for a mighty hunter... In the face of God, this is what religion looks like. These people, by the way, they discovered how to bake bricks. I mean, bake them so they could be tempered. According to, by the way, Josephus and others, Patark will actually talk about how uh, in the plains of Babylon, oh, about an eight days journey, according to Herodotus, by the way, Herodotus, that uh, they found these like tar pits, these asphalt pits. And so they were able to take this stuff and use it, by the way, as mortar. 
So they could bake these bricks, and then they would take pitch, this kind of this particular uh, material. Uh, it's called bitumen, and they can kind of put it in, in kind of. And this stuff just, man, this stuff was just hard, and it was durable, and it was weather resistant. And they're like, check this thing out. We're building this big, beautiful tower. And, and, and understand, it isn't that God looks and goes, "Well, I, I hate towers. We better tear this thing down." Is God threatened by this? Nothing of the sort. What you have is a tyrant who basically has said, here's the deal, we don't... Did you notice the one thing missing from all this conversation is God? Hey, you know what? We as a human being, we don't need this God guy. Let's do it ourselves. Let's build our city. Let's build our tower. And we'll go up to heaven anytime we want to. We won't wait for God to do it. We'll take matters into our own hands. And you know what is the result of that? We'll make ourselves important. We'll make a name for ourselves. And then we read this. Verse 5, but the Lord came down to see the city. That big city that everyone was going, whoa, by God's like, where is that again? He came down to the city and the tower that the sons of men had built. And notice again how he talks about the sons of men, not the sons of God. Remember how he made that title about people who weren't pursuing him? And God goes, hey, by the way, can I slip that in one more time? Did you notice how they're looking again just like they were before? And the Lord said, indeed, these people are one and they have one language. And this is what they begin to do. Notice that text. This is only the beginning. What happens when everyone is united under a same language, under a same cause? And the cause in the simplest sense is let's build a world without God. Well, there's going to be no limit to how far this is going to go. I mean, what happens next? It isn't just that their minds are so smart, they built them in a way that if they combine those minds together, they can create tremendous technology. And one day the iPad 2 will come out. In the end of it all, how far will they go in this before the entire world is one where they are convinced that they just don't need me anymore, that I don't exist? And God says, I'm done with this. Now, he could have wiped them out again. Now, couldn't he? He could have said, well, you know what? Let's wipe them out and let's start again. But he doesn't. He says, you know, instead, let's just scatter them all over the earth. So if we can scatter them all over the earth, I can speak to them in their language now. So that they don't all say, hey, this is, let's all join hands because we're all people and we're all, you know, and we'll just kind of get together and we'll build a world without, a utopic world without God. And God's like, look, it, I created you to be with me from the beginning. There's no part of this that I want to just be you without me. There is no part of your life I want without me. No part. Your education, your pursuits, your dreams, your desires, your value system, I don't want any part of that, of your life without me. Jesus didn't send his son to die on the cross so that you can actually get timeshare with him so that he could get joint custody. Jesus did this to deliver you from the power of darkness into the sun he loves. That's what he told us. He's like, look, I don't want a breath without you. And David understood this because David would write that when your thoughts about me, they outnumber the sand on the shore. The sand on the shore... Try to count those, for instance, and what you're going to get is somewhere right at about, if I find any shore, the ones at least we knew in our area, and we kind of took a cross-section of it back at the beaches of California, we came up with somewhere about 72 million grains of sand per second. I think 72 million thoughts about me every second from God. Sounds like somebody radically obsessed. And God says, yeah, and if it wasn't me, that would be creepy. But I love you, and I, I love you that much. I am that obsessed with you. And if that's the case, trying to build a world without me, it isn't going to work. And you know what? Hear me out on this. Because this is 
what I face. I don't know about you. I would assume the same, but this is what I battle. I mean, genuinely. Is the problem is I have capabilities in and of myself. I'm not the, the dimmest bulb, perhaps, in the chandelier. I wouldn't consider myself the brightest, but I would say that somewhere in all of that, I'm capable of doing a few things. And I know what it's like, to be honest, to coast in such a way that I could really spend a lot of my time building a world and then trying to introduce God to it instead of letting Him build the world with me or build the world for me, if that makes any sense. And God's like, well, what's this? Well, it's a world I kind of... I kind of was hoping you and I could live in. And God's like, you know what? I'm the one who builds the garden we can walk through, not you. But God, aren't you proud of me? God goes, why would I be proud of something when I wanted to be with you this whole time? Now, this is not to make you feel bad. This is just part of my journey. But I, I really don't ever want any part of my life later on to have to be torn down. Some tower I'm building to make a name for myself that would really wow you. And God would say, I have to come down to look at it because in the end of it all, the difference between God's religion and man's is who does the traveling. According to man's religion, I do the traveling up. According to God's religion, he makes the trip down. Do you see the difference? I've got to tell you, this is a constant battle for me. It's a constant battle of going, Lord, can we just spend this time together and you do what you want? I mean, I've got a chapter and we're going to go through 72 names and I'm like, Lord, we could wow people with this or what do you want to do in this? And I look at this and I realize that God's looking at this and He's going, you know what? If you're going to build this kind of thing, I'm telling you what, I'm going, to, I'm going to have to scatter you. I'm going to have to scatter this world you're in at the moment because you're so busy building a world without me. Unless I scatter this, you will never cry out to me. Does that make any sense? Is that anyone's testimony other than mine? Where at the moment things are good and God goes, and you realize it's really a house of cards after all, though you thought it was pretty, pretty cool. And God goes, nice dominoes you set up, and God taps it. And you're like, I worked really hard, and that guy goes, but there's something better. And David would say, look at you are my portion, my lot and my portion. Not the world. I'm making a name for myself. So there's a guy from the 12th, 13th century who has a brass and a church in Plymouth, and people can look at it and go, wow, that's what they... And my, my first thought is, because I'm a simpleton, well, that's what they looked like back then. I didn't think, wow, what made him a sir? Who wouldn't... I mean, what guy wouldn't want to be knighted? Would that be... That'd be a cool thing. But for what? I would rather be a colonel in the soldier, a soldier in the Lord's army. Because somewhere in all of that, there's an eternal consequence to that. So let me wrap this up. Because God's Word tells me something other than this man's religion. And here it is. On one side, there was somebody led by a tyrant. On the other side, I'm led by the Good Shepherd. Either way, I'm going to follow someone. Who are you going to follow? Ezekiel 34 talks about God coming down and shepherding His people because the wicked shepherd that actually fat the sheep for their own benefit. Psalm 23 tells us that the Lord is my shepherd. You know that. It ends with, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's what David caused David to sort of pant. In John 10, Jesus himself says, I am the, not a, but the good shepherd. And, and by the way, fundamentally, God comes down, not man comes up. When we get to this issue of building an altar, there are going to be these two mountains. One's the altar of, or mountain of blessing. One's the mountain of curses. And God says, I want you to build an altar. Don't fashion it. Don't form it. Just take rocks and stick them on top of each other. I want it as crude and as basic as possible. And they go, really, what do we do with it? He goes, you know what? I want you to take it and put it at the base 
of the mountain of curses, not blessings. Because man's religion would be crawl up the mountain of blessing, and God says, but what my religion is, is I'll meet you at the foot of the curse. Isn't that what the cross is? I realize that's what Ezekiel 3 tells me. That's what Philippians 2 tells me. That he made himself of no reputation, seeing equality with God, nothing that would be robbery, but that made himself a man of no reputation, taking on the form of a servant, being obedient even to death, and even death on the cross. But the most important aspect of all that, perhaps, is that God made me important. You're going to spend your whole life trying to find out what makes you important, but scripturally, you were important at the cross, and you'll never be more important anywhere else because that's the one place where the only person, hear me out, the only person who knows every rotten, nasty thing about you and me chose to take it all to the cross when you hated him and pay for it because that's how head over heels, irreversibly and impregnably in love with you he is. So what could you do to impress a God like that? Surrender. That seems to be the only thing in Scripture, surrender. Because He already knows everything else. Will you accept the gift of Christ today? And if you have accepted the gift of Christ, will you pray that God clean up our religion today? Because all this stuff that's born out of that, caring after the widows and orphans and the distress and keeping yourself unpolluted by the world or from the world, those things happen naturally the moment you cling and surrender to a living God and say, all right, God, ravish me with your very presence and make me completely and absolutely yours. And all of a sudden, I don't hunger for the things of the world like I did a second ago. So I want to, I want to leave you with this prayer for a second. And, and for those who want to join with me in it, I'd like to rededicate my life to the Lord today. And I'd like to encourage you to do the same. And here's just a simple prayer. I'd like you to read it, and in a moment we can read it together if you like. So take the moment and let the Holy Spirit work on you, and then we'll pray, and then, beloved, we get to have communion today. So take the moment and just read. Chapter 11, verse 9 said this, by the way, When the Lord scattered them abroad, there over the face of the earth, he confused their languages, and then he scattered them abroad. He could have done both, the continental divides and the languages. But one thing's for sure, he dispersed them. And it said they ceased building the city. It's hard to build a city when you have to commute across the ocean. But then he called the place Babel, which now Babel means, well, Babel means confusion. And it's because the Lord confused the languages all over the earth and scattered them abroad. And I guarantee you, if every moment you want to spend building your world without Him, it's just going to dissipate. Or you can surrender and watch God hold all things gloriously together. Here's the prayer, and if you want to pray it with me, be my guest. Dear God in heaven, I'm a sinner. I've done wrong, and I cannot make it right by simply trying harder. I need you to make me right. I believe you sent Jesus, your only begotten Son, to die on the cross to pay for my guilt and my shame and my wrong. So I accept your gift, confessing Jesus as my redemption and my Redeemer. I also believe he rose again on the third day, just like your word promised. So in the humble surrender of my life, I confess Jesus as my Lord as well. Please have me now. I am yours. In Jesus' name, and if you agree, I ask you to say, 
Amen.